Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and joining us today to talk all about the latest news in retail, it is Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief at RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so first up, let's talk Lululemon. I think we always like that. It's got that Vancouver connection very strong there. And we found out that they have quietly closed its men's only stores in Toronto and New York City. This is according to Bloomberg. I don't know. Is this a bit of a failed experiment, Craig? Uh, Why did this not work out? You know, I was surprised because I really thought this was going to work out. Um, I've been to the men's store in Toronto, and it was a really neat experience. Like, it was a more masculine experience. Um, you know, it, it had like you know, a coffee bar and it had a, was it a pool table or was it, it was something like that. Like it was uh, uh, sort of its own unique uh, experience. It was kind of dark inside and uh, I, I liked it. it was, I'm actually surprised uh, um, that they, they closed it. As well, um, you know, I could be wrong. I thought there was a, a men's store in Park Royal in West Vancouver. Mm. Um, I'd actually have to check that myself and whether or not that actually even closed because I don't think that was mentioned in that Bloomberg article. Um, it actually, honestly, it surprises me a bit that men would be receptive and, you know, going to the dual, dual gender stores, uh, if that's, you know, the truth in terms of, uh, you know, how these men's stores were doing, but, uh, you know, Lululemon, so they wanted to, was it double their men's business or more? And, uh, I would have thought freestanding men's stores was an avenue to do that. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, how it was a cool experience to be in there. And why don't we talk about these other retail experiences that are going on? Uh, we know that Fossil is up to something pretty cool. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with Fossil. Yeah, Fossil's really interesting. You know, it was one of those brands, they're known for their watches and for their um, kind of rugged luggage or luggage bags that, uh, you know, would have leather, a bit of a patina to it. And, uh, you know, that was, this is honestly one of those brands I thought was kind of dying. And, uh, you know, it's been around forever. You see the stores, you're like, oh yeah, there it is. You know, it's nothing. So, but Fossil did, um, they decided to be innovative and they looked at what, uh, you know, other companies are doing for retail experience, which includes customization and personalization, as well as, you know, creating a store experience that people actually want to go into. Because, you know, if I want a Fossil watch, I could probably just order one online right now and not even have to bother leaving my home. So, um, what they've done, and they're going to be opening this, it's the second location, I believe, in the world, certainly it's the second in Canada. It's called a maker concept. And what you can do is you can go in there and you can have uh, products personalized. This will be, by the way, at Metropolis at Metrotown. I should have mentioned that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. first one opened, uh, the first one opened last year at the CF Toronto Eaton Centre in Toronto. And it was the first in the world for the concept. And I was told, um, our source was actually the broker, that the store had been doing quite well. And that's why they're looking at rolling it out elsewhere because uh, this is kind of the way of the future for brick and mortar retail. I'm very curious about that. You know, why do you think retailers are getting more attuned to making these real destinations for people? I think it's because um, physical retail is, it even drives online retail in terms of it, it creates a community. It's, it's a face-to-face interaction that you don't really get online. And uh, what's interesting as well is uh, some studies have shown, one of them is from International Council of Shopping Centers, uh, that when, uh, say, a retailer that was only online, if they were to open a store, in a, a physical store, of course, in a uh, certain location, that even traffic to their website would go up as high as 37%. So it really is a strategy of creating brand awareness. Um, a lot of people do go through the metropolis at Metro Town. I think it's probably the busiest shopping center in British Columbia in terms of numbers. It's like about 27 to 28 million people a year. So it's super busy and having a really great fossil store or be it, you know, Muji, Uniqlo, all the other stores that are in that mall, 
um, you know, it's a great way to build the brand because you're literally in front of millions of people a year. So it's, it's almost like a billboard, but then the store itself, you know, inside is, is interesting and exciting and fun and something that people actually want to go to. Well, you mentioned online sales just a second ago. So why don't we talk about Amazon's continued growth here in Metro Vancouver? They are prepping to open their third warehouse in the region. We also know that they're hiring lots and lots and lots. Uh, is this a sign of maybe tougher times ahead for those traditional retailers, knowing how much Amazon is investing in this particular region? It might be. I mean, Amazon is growing like crazy. And uh, I was just reading that 42% of Canadian households now are Amazon Prime subscribers uh, or members, whatever you call that. And uh, um, that, I guess, probably should be somewhat concerning to some mainstream retailers because Amazon has really expanded its uh, product assortment and, you know, it's competing on price and, uh, um, you know, it's very, very good news for Vancouver because, uh, you know, it's one of the highest employment centers, I think, for Amazon anywhere, actually. And uh, or at least right now, I mean, Washington, D.C. will have many employees sure. at some point when, uh, you know, that H, do we call it HQ2, just because they were going to split it up between Long Island City and, and you know, suburban Washington, D.C. And then Long Island City got mad and didn't want it because they hate Amazon. And so <laughs> oversimplification, but it was oversimplification. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, Amazon really is taking market share from a lot of retailers. And uh, there was actually, uh, I think it was yesterday in the New York Times, or it was in the last few days, there was an article on how, uh, you know, it's almost uncomfortable to discuss that, you know, Amazon has a lot of counterfeit books. You know, for example, say a textbook uh, um, from a uh, well-known researcher, uh, someone may, you know, basically lift that content and sell it as their own for a lot less money. And that, uh, uh, I think, is... You know, we're really, really quite concerning. And actually, one of the biggest concerns, and this is a bit scary, was they were saying that some of the reproduction was actually photocopies. And uh, you weren't able to make out if um, a number was a one or a seven. And some of these books actually had, uh, you know, how to diagnose and, and provide medication for certain illnesses. So in other words, the doctor, you know, whoever's looking at this book may not actually know uh, <laughs> if it's a one or a seven. That's, so uh, this is, this is a- that's quite frightening. It is, it is. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, if you went on to Amazon.ca right now and Googled Louis Vuitton, you can buy a bag for 40 bucks. So there, there are counterfeits on yeah. there. It's hard for them to monitor this, but, I mean, that, I think that's a really interesting issue. It hasn't really been discussed much in the media, but, um, you know, and Amazon says crack down on it. But I've been watching for months and the same LV bag is there, and I've just been watching for my own amusement. I'm like, let's see how long it takes them to figure this out. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the other things that I think is interesting here, though, is that you brought up a lot of the uh, first to markets in Canada sort of retailers just a few moments ago. But uh, why don't we, uh, when you're referencing, say, Muji or Uniqlo, but why don't we talk about some of these international retailers that are targeting Vancouver specifically to make their launch here in Canada? We know that Australia's King Living, you guys have written about that. Uh, They are the furniture store. They are debuting in Vancouver first. Why is that? What's the appeal about Vancouver? Vancouver is an interesting market. It's quite diverse. Um, it's uh, a market where there is a segment of the population that has money to shop. And I think that, uh, and also, you know, people do travel to the city and Vancouver does get noticed. You know, it's a bit of a media darling, if you want to call it that. So um, some of these uh, retailers are coming in and saying, well, you know, this is an interesting market. It's a beautiful city. Maybe it's even an excuse just to visit Vancouver. <laughs> but, uh, you know, opening the first store, uh, uh, in that market, you know, they, they look at Vancouver, you know, and Toronto and a few other markets as being launch pads for brands. And, 
you know, in the case of King Living, it's in a higher-end uh, Australian furniture brand. Um, it's their first store in North America, and, and there's been a few others like that. You know, um, Kimberlite Diamonds opened their first location in North America, not too far away from King Living, funny enough, on the South Granville Strip. And then uh, DSW, you know, Designer Shoe Warehouse, uh, they actually, and this really surprised me, they actually beta tested a concept called Grail, a sneaker concept, again, on South Granville. And uh, uh, they cho- they consciously chose Vancouver to be the first location in the world to beta test this. So, uh, you know, Vancouver being a dynamic and actually advanced retail uh, market, I would say overall, uh, I think is a desirable place to test out concepts. However, you know, given some of the affluence you see in Vancouver, you won't see that in other markets. So maybe it wouldn't be the best test because I don't know if... Uh, you know, the market in Indianapolis is going to be anything close to what it would be in Vancouver, at least in terms of retail sales. Right. Very true there. Um, One last thing that we can chat about here, Craig, though, but the rising cost of foods, uh, it's becoming, you know, increasing concern to a lot of people out there. And there's actually a new poll that was uh, featured on a a website. I'm blanking on the name. I do apologize. But they were talking about how there's potential for it to even become an election issue. So I, I'm curious from your perspective, like what's maybe putting pressure on food costs and why would this possibly have some sort of influence in upcoming elections here in Canada? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll jump to the second question in terms of uh, being an issue to Canadians, which, you know, could be an election issue. Um, you know, we, we look at the average Canadian salary, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they are going up in, in many categories, but, you know, overall stagnated. And at the same time, we've got... Uh, you know, taxes that are increasing. And then we have a staggering cost of living, you know, be it whether or not you're renting or owning. In many parts of Canada, we're seeing uh, very high real estate prices. So, you know, basically what, and then, you know, the other stuff, you know, I always talk about these $2,000 Apple phones and how ridiculous it is. And, you know, we're upgrading them all the time. So what I'm saying is that Canadians have less money. So when food prices go up, this is a bit scary because, you know, people on fixed incomes or people who have budgeted for a certain amount, are you know losing out and and I do think that you know that frustration is a quality of life issue which uh, in turn is uh, potentially something that you know would become political and people would want lower food prices I don't know how much the government could do to affect that I mean it's it's economics uh, but but nevertheless you know it, it, I think it remains to be seen I mean food production can be dependent on weather and you know geopolitical issues uh, tariffs and uh, we're at a very interesting time in our uh, history you know, politically and economically. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to be hitting food prices. Uh, um, the world is changing. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have to monitor that because I am really curious, you know, how much of a pressure point this is going to be for politicians moving into the federal election in this fall. Uh, Craig, let's keep in touch. We'll be back in about two weeks. And I, I think we are uh, discussing a pretty cool kind of innovative sort of format for our next show. So let's look forward to that, too. Sounds great. Excellent. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. And that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. You can help reach more people that way. I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening.